This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. My guest today is Peter Perumba, the former owner of Dynalite. For over 40 years, Peter worked at one of the best strobe companies in the world. For 28 of those years, he owned the company. A lot of things happened and changed to the photo business during that time. We talk about it all, the good and the bad. I, I can't imagine what Nikon is doing or, or Sony when you're looking at these numbers just continuing to drop, continuing to drop. You know, below 8 million units last year when you peaked at 121 million. How do you, how do you forecast a 97% drop? You'd be fired if you went into your boss and said, you know what, in 10 years, we're going to be... No, nobody accepts that. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. We've had such guests who have won the Silver Star, won the Emmy, and photographer Rick Tapia. I say I work every day and no days. Okay. <laughs> Meaning that... I'm always doing something for my business every day of the week, whether it's editing, whether it's phone calls, whether it's thinking about how to grow my business, what clients I want. And then it's also, I work no days because I love my job. I, you know, that's what I want to do. Like, like, what do you want to do with, with your life when you retire? It's like, I think I am semi-retired already. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm shooting. I'm getting paid to travel the United States shooting football games. What do you mean when I retire? This is my retirement. Go to Just a Good Conversation for all our archives. Let's take a quick break for our sponsor before diving into our conversation with Peter. Peter, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate it. No, you're quite welcome. My pleasure. This was something I really wanted to do, especially when I saw the announcement in January. I definitely wanted to reach out to you and get you on the podcast. So I'm glad you had time today uh, to sit down and, and talk. Um, it's funny. All I know of, of you is uh, the man who, who ran the company that uh, made helped me make pictures for years. I loved your products. Can you give me a little backstory on like where you, are you an East Coast guy? Did you grow up on the East Coast? Oh, absolutely. Uh, all my life, I actually, uh, or for most of my life, I was in New Jersey. I uh, grew up in New Jersey. Uh, the business was first founded in uh, New Jersey. The founding fathers uh, of Dynalite were uh, Paul Schwartz. He was the engineer and had all the electrical uh, know-how. Uh, Ed Lambert, he was a photographer. And my father uh, was the third founding father. He actually, in the very beginning, was just a silent investor. And then uh, it kind of uh, actually... Back then, my dad owned an appliance store, and my first recollection of Dynalite was when I was working for my dad at his appliance store, these guys would come into his appliance store in Irvington, New Jersey, and Dynalite was actually on our third floor. So these guys would come through the front door and go up the staircase to go up to the third floor. <laughs> That's cool. How, what kind of appliances did your dad sell, like washers, dryers, refrigerators? Yeah, uh, you know, an old, uh, old-time uh, mom-and-pop type shop, uh, you know, general appliances, air conditioners, that kind of thing. And that was your first job? That was my first job, yep. I was uh, 14 or 15 years old. Were you a tinker? Did you like to take things apart and see how they worked? Not back then. I definitely have evolved into that, uh, for sure. 
and it's almost a uh, obsession with me to kind of always see what the limits of things are. Uh, you know, like even my motorcycle now, you know, immediately start changing the exhaust, the, <laughs> you know, changing a tune on it. And, you know, I always tinker with things. And that definitely did happen through my years at Dynalite. So was it something like the tinkering, was it like reverse engineering or improving to see like how it was built? More improving. Uh, early on, well, let me back up. My So I worked for my dad. He then joined Dynalite and gave the appliance business up to my brother who converted it to a audio store. And uh, I worked for my brother for a little bit, but that didn't go well. So I uh, started uh, doing other things. I was still in high school, of course, back then. Right. Uh, actually, I was in uh, a uh, vocational class. Thankfully, my high school had a separate wing for vocational classes. You know, your traditional auto body, auto mechanics, electricity, electronics, which is what I took. Uh, And it was three hours a day. So thankfully, I was able to get in on my freshman year, uh, sophomore year rather. So I had it in my sophomore year and my junior year. And in my senior year, I went out to work for half of the day. Uh, now most people, if they understand all that, know that I was not a good student. Usually the uh, bad kids get put in the vocational wing, which is a shame Yeah, uh, because that whole separate area that I think this country could use a little bit better, uh, education in the vocational, uh, arts. But, uh, so I was, uh, after I left working for my brother, I was delivering furniture for, uh, several hours a day, uh, I was pumping gas, and I was working at a liquor store on the weekends. So I've always been uh, aggressive in, in where my work and uh, my I feel my work ethic. But uh, yeah, I was working my butt off, and my dad wasn't too thrilled with my choice of career. That wasn't a career, it was just work. And uh, he said to me that there's a position opening at, at Dynalite for a shipping clerk, and he wanted me to apply. I told him I didn't really want to do that because uh, I didn't want to work for family. He said, you're not working for family. It's three owners, and you probably won't even see me. So thankfully, I did apply, and of course, I had the inside track, so I did get the job. And <laughs> after that... Uh, I really have to give credit to Paul Schwartz because as positions opened up in the company, he I, I would up, apply and he would give me the opportunity to, to do it. So I literally wound up doing everything at the company on my way up through the, the ranks. That is great. Now you know how the whole company yeah. works by doing that. Exactly. And my tinkering came about because uh, at one point I was the production manager and Paul didn't really want to expand the employee base. He preferred to outsource. And we had a a bunch of good people that were doing uh, subcontracting work for us. And I saw that and I said, well, do you mind if I do some of this at home? And he said, as long as it does not interfere with the your daily chores and you are priced no higher than the other guys. He didn't, he didn't mind. 
So it was at that point, as I started uh, doing work for as a subcontractor, that I saw how tedious some of these tasks were. And like, and what were the tasks? What were you What were you doing at that oh, point? A, a, primarily, a lot of hand soldering, uh, manual insertion of a lot of things. So I designed those out as I progressed through my uh, career there. Uh, my first unit, uh, I basically just built on the side and then presented it to Paul, and uh, he liked it, and it became a model. It wow. wasn't any new circuitry. It was just his circuitry laid out in a different way. And then with me pushing the boundaries, I would experiment with, well, how far can we push this before it becomes an issue? And then, you know, back off of that to get back into the safety zone. Where Paul was more safety conscious and more middle of the road. So I I definitely, being the young Turk, uh, pushed the boundaries. Sure. Now, did you have interest in photography at this point or at all? I did as a child. Uh... I remember even before my my career with Dynalite, I got into photography and Dynalite was doing something with Bessler. So actually I got a Bessler 23C to play with at home. Wow. And I, you know, started doing some developing and you know all the stuff back in the uh mid to late 70s. Uh so I did have a an interest in it, I wouldn't say it was hardcore, and unfortunately, I never really got to be hardcore. It more was business for me than a a serious hobby. Right. I, you know, I I joke around. I said if I don't take a better picture between the gear I have and all of the people I've associated through my life, then shame on me. Uh, <laughs> Something had to have rubbed off off over all the years of hanging out with people like you. At what point is this that are you starting to like expand inside Dynalite? Late seventies. Well, I started in seventy nine. Okay, uh, October of seventy nine is when I started with Dynalite. Uh, pretty much, almost immediately, I started my path up. I, I really don't remember how many months or years I was just the shipping clerk. I don't think it was that meant that long, but then I wound up doing purchasing production manager, um, little bookkeeping. Uh, why do you think you literally stayed? Everything. I was going to say, why did you think you stayed that long? If you were kind of hesitant in the beginning working with family, then a year or two and you're still staying around. Well, because like my father said, I was not working for him. Okay. It was pretty much, I was working for Paul and Ed. Okay. Um, my dad really was in his office. He was, he was the accountant okay. and I really didn't have much interaction with him. Was, what was Paul and Ed's then responsibility? Were they doing like product development at that time? And what was their day of day? As I mentioned, he was the uh, head engineer, uh, so he was always in product development. Uh, Ed, with his photographic background, he was in charge of marketing and sales. Who were the competition back then? 79. Who was, who was Dynalite's competition? They're a new company, right? They're seven, eight years old. 
Correct. Uh, well, uh, primarily we had uh, Speedatron, uh, was well established back then. Norman uh, was also a very strong competitor. Uh, thankfully, the strobe business was a bit regional. So while Speedatron and Norman were were nationally known brands, they definitely were stronger in their respective turf, uh, Norman being California and Speedatron being Chicago. Interesting. Uh, thankfully, since we were in New Jersey, we were based right at the uh, home base of the photo district. Uh, we had easier access to that area. Right. However, we never really achieved the status symbol uh, like a Broncolor. Of course, Broncolor was a competitor back then. Also, Balcar uh, oh, was around back then. That's right. Boy, forgot about them, yeah. Yeah, they've kind of long gone. But yeah, they were, were big. And then through the years, you know, there's were some up-and-comers like uh, Luz, I think was their name, which made a unit very similar to ours. Uh, we were very unique, and that's what differentiated us against the competition. Uh, the Speedatron packs and the Norman packs of their day were quite large and heavy. Oh, and yeah. Paul's design, uh, even back then, were remarkable in in comparison to the offerings from Speedatron and Norman. So we gravitated to a uh, location-style photographer more than the studio photographer because the studio photographer really didn't care about the weight of the unit. It wasn't being hauled around. But right. freelance guys, location guys, uh, you know, they needed and loved the the small and lightweight uh, units that we offered. At this point, now you're making your way through... Where do you think this is going to be a long-term thing to you three or four years in? Are you thinking I could maybe stick around and make something of this? No. Uh, I honestly didn't have any intention or forethought of where this was going. Uh, at some point, it wound up being, yeah, this is probably going to be my career. But in those first four or five years, not really. I guess it was about the fifth year uh, where things kind of, sh there was a shakeup uh, at Dynalite. My dad thought he was dying. Uh, I guess he was misdiagnosed. Uh, so he split up his shares of his company to myself uh, and my sister and him himself. So we wound up being on the board, my sister and I, and at a board meeting, uh, Paul had conspired with my father to nominate me to be vice president because he was unhappy with what Ed was doing. And what year is this? And this would have been 84. Wow. So <laughs> are you, do you think you're at the, if you look back now, do you think you were ready for something like that? Oh, definitely not. Uh, my family, I was the actual, uh, we had a family of four. I was the first and last of the children to get a, uh, a regular high school diploma. So college wasn't really in the uh, books for me. But okay. thankfully, I did have that vocational training. Right. Uh, so I did have some background uh, to, to fall back on. But no, I, you know, I was just playing it playing the cards as I was dealt them. Okay. Thankfully, all the, uh, the friends I had uh, growing up kind of really directed me to 
be a little more street smart. Okay. So I uh, I just kind of went with it. And in the fact that also that uh, my mom had passed away when I was only 14. So I kind of just grew up taking care of myself. And that kind of just went through in my life. So they nominate you and, you and you take this mantle of VP. How does that go? Well, first of all, I was floored because I didn't know what was going on. It was like... <laughs> Oh, what happened? And unfortunately for Ed, the same reaction for him, but in a negative way. Uh, so, no, I, I just uh, took the mantle and ran with it and, uh, you know, just tried to do my best. And like I said, I, I, I do thank Paul uh, for allowing me all these opportunities and, and having faith in me to, to do the job. Right. How was the company at this point? We're 14, 15 years into, you know, being a company. How is it? Is it pretty healthy? Uh, well, we always were undercapitalized. Uh, that was always a an issue with us. We could never really do that breakout moment. We were successful. We, uh, actually, I even remember when we first, when I first started with Dynolite, I think I should say, I just said I remembered. Our yearly sales the year before was $460,000. Okay. And I don't remember what we were in 84, but at some point we had we had approached $5 million in sales. Okay. So, uh, while healthy, uh, you know, we were still never the dominant player like a Broncolor uh, was or in more modern era pro photo. What is it like in the eighties running this, you know, as a VP running this company? Well, my first assignment, uh, was probably the wildest one. I was supposed to, or I did fly out to Lake Tahoe to visit Ken Marcus and Nancy Brown. Uh, we were sponsoring both of them and we were sponsoring the, uh, Lake Tahoe photo workshops at the time. Okay. So because I needed to see two people, I and I couldn't stay out there the full entire week, I purposely flew in midweek of Ken's class and midweek and then pick up the second half or the first half of Nancy's class. Mm -hmm. So here I am, twenty twenty four ish years old, walking in on a Ken Marcus workshop. <laughs> so for the people in your podcast that may not who can know who Ken Marcus was he was a fantastic Playboy photographer. Yeah. And so his class was on photographing nudes. So 24-year-old kid walking into all sorts of Playmate caliper models hanging out. And uh, I distinctly remember when I first walked in, one of the models... She was talking to the photographer, and she says, I don't know, there seems to be a lot of new people here today. And she stares at me. And the photographer says, well, you know, some people got here late, blah, blah, blah. And she says, I don't know, today in particular, it just seems like a lot of new people. And she stares right at me again. <laughs> and I, at that point, I pipe up, and I says, relax, I'm supposed to be here. I'm supplying all the lighting here. So, But that was like my, uh, my first assignment after being uh, promoted. <laughs> So yeah, it was a, it was a fantastic trip. <laughs> I'm guessing the uh, uh, Miss Brown's workshop didn't go quite that same way. 
no, but <laughs> I'll tell you, Nancy is, is such a fabulous woman. Uh, the thing that I remember to this day is while she was teaching the class, she was ironing the model's outfit for the next shoot. <laughs> really? So she was such, yeah, I mean, she was such a humble person. Uh, and still is to this day. Yeah. God bless. She's still alive. Uh, she's doing well down in Florida. But yeah, we actually wound up having a, a friendship. Uh, you know, but that was the first time I met her. Wow, Lake Tahoe of all places. Yeah. So, did you guys try to do a lot of uh, workshop sponsoring even then, early, to try to get the name out and get uh, get the oh, gear in people's hands? Yeah, well, we were doing the Lake Tahoe uh, workshop. We were doing the main photo workshops. We did uh, those for years, uh, which was kind of funny and aggravating at the same point because a lot of people would say, you know, you should really try to get into workshops. I said, we are in workshops. Yeah. Uh, we've been in schools. Uh, you know, a lot of people love to give advice, and sometimes they don't realize you know, you're already knocked on those doors and tried those things. That was some of the hard knocks through the years, actually. And, uh, you know, some things I did right. And, of course, you always do some things wrong also. Sure. Some of the things I tried just didn't pan out at all. Well, that's business. If you nailed every one, yeah, I mean, yeah, it would be unreal. So yeah. how were the 80s for you? Well, we saw some good growth. Uh, then in 1984... I'm uh, sorry, 1988, uh, four years after we uh, got promoted, we had the good fortune of a company being interested in us. Uh, that was a company called Comet. They made Flash in Japan. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they wanted some better U.S. presence. And the 80s back then, Japan was on such a roll, they could do no wrong. Uh they came a knocking, so uh, I, I remember sitting down between Paul and my dad and saying, "Well, what do you think? I, what, did, what, what should we ask?" So I, I just threw out a, a number. Paul said, "We can't ask that much." I said, "Why not?" I said, "We didn't approach them; they approached us." Right, right, yeah. And has all the money right now. There's an exchange rate in their favor, and you know, I explained my side. So thankfully, Paul took my advice and we started at a high high number and we negotiated down thankfully not too far down so uh we, we came out looking pretty good when uh all came out great uh, my dad immediately retired and uh paul and i stayed on to run the the now owned by comet dynalite and uh paul was there in that position for three years and then uh, the people at Comet promoted me to president and uh, uh, had Paul resign. Uh, Paul was doing something he shouldn't have been doing with a Japanese-owned company. He started tinkering with uh, remote-control helicopters, and he was actually selling parts, building pieces, and, and some of that was on Dynalite time, which was a huge no-no for a Japanese company. Oh, yeah. With a Japanese company, your, your whole life revolves around the company. Absolutely. So they had him step down and had me uh, uh, as president in 91. 
were they at this time just looking for a pure like presence and name on a label? Like you guys make it slap a comet name or did they actually want you guys to go out, develop stuff for them in Asia? No, it was more of they were using us as a distribution point for their products. Okay. Uh, so we were also uh, being exported into Japan. So it was kind of like Dynalite because we made different types of product. So they were not really competitors with each other. Okay. So they tried to sell uh, – Dynalite in Asia, primarily in Japan, but also some other countries. And uh, we were then selling Comet in the United States. And with the Comet line, it opened up some higher-end studios that we normally wouldn't have gotten. Uh, there was some specialty work for uh, Kodak, um, also for Disney. So it opened up some other doors having that as in our arsenal to offer. That's interesting. Twofold. How did the sales go for you in Asia? And then why do you think some people looked at you as the company and say, well, you're not, you know, a five star, you're a three and a half, four star. Like what were they looking for? Well, uh, we always had a, uh, not as polished, because by this point, uh, Pro Photo is around. And from legend, and I, I was never able to really confirm the story, but apparently it, from the sources I've heard, it, it must be true. Apparently, Pro Photo had approached to purchase us before Comet did. And apparently, Paul must have snubbed his nose at them. Uh, at that point, I was totally unaware of that there was any offer on the table. The only offer I knew was from Comet. Uh, so apparently, from what I was told, uh, they took offense and they came out with the acute line to destroy us. Interesting. And the acute line is extremely okay. similar to the product line that we were offering. Now, here's the rub. The acute line, I don't think, was polished. Later Protophoto products absolutely were polished. They definitely had uh, a, a nice <laughs> look to them. But the acutes were not the nicest of looking units. So I always took offense okay. to some people, you know, looking down on us and putting that particular Protophoto on uh, a pedestal because... There was no real difference, performance or aesthetically. But there were some other units, the Bronx Colors of the World, uh, were definitely a little bit more fit and finished that were nicer uh, than us. So we were always more of the Chevy, the Chevy pickup truck, uh, rather than the Ferrari. You know, the Ferrari was always Bronx Color. Right. And then later on, Profoto, as they refined their products line, became the Ferrari also, particularly like with the, the Pro 7A, okay. the, the D4, right. uh, D1, I think it was. Mm -hmm. So they, they definitely uh, developed into that type of product. But in the uh, mid to late 80s, they were not there yet. No, definitely right. not. But they did have a a very good game plan in that they went after all the rental businesses and that was a very successful uh, strategy. Right. And Get it into people's both. hands. Yeah. 
uh, and they did it through the rental business. And it was also a matter of a good fortune. It was a matter of the right product at the right time, which is always key in 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 hindsight, you know. Mm-hmm. Had I realized that there was a lot of right product at the right time coming at me in the in the late stages of Dynalite's life, uh, I might have been able to circumvent that a little bit. But uh, definitely, the uh, the right product at the right time happened around 2014, 2015. So mm. skipping it. Skipping forward a bunch of years. Was there advantage that they just had so much more, much more capital? I, I think so. I, you know, I never really understood their their finances, but I knew mine uh, and our finances. Uh, right after Comet bought us is when Japan basically hit the skids. So where we thought we might have had a nice shot in the arm, we wound up not having that shot in the arm. Also, a strategic error uh, on uh, our part was in our desire to ship to Europe. We had set up this whole uh, infrastructure for going over to Europe, and we failed miserably. What was Uh, the issues? Uh... I just think we were we were looking to be way too aggressive in what we were spending to hit a certain dollar amount, and the decimal point was in the wrong spot. Uh. Uh, so we were bleeding money and trying to get the sales up, and the sales just weren't there. And there were some little technical issues because the you know European market was two twenty, and we did not do a. a a bi voltage unit. So we were building specific 220 volt units oh, uh, versus uh, having a bi voltage unit. And that was the beauty of the Profoto Acutes. They were bi voltage. And at that time, people would still think nothing of uh, throwing a couple of cases onto the airline and, and away you go. How difficult would that have been to make, make that switch and make it a bi instead of just making it strictly 220? Well, uh, that was where my limitations on my education started to to peak. Uh, We were relying heavily on Comet's engineers rather than our own engineers. And the Japanese produce wonderful product, but they are dreadfully slow at development and they uh, test extensively. So uh, to say that they won't release a product until it's ready is an understatement. Uh, So we were just getting further and further behind, and the economic situations were changing. You know, there's always business cycles, and, you know, we've had the crash of uh, 2001, I think it was, and there was, of course, the big crash in uh, 2008. Uh, So these things just are always in play. And unfortunately, a lot of the timing just went against us. Uh, as I mentioned, Japan's market collapsed and right. you know, they didn't have the reserves they once had. Wow. Yeah. So like, what can you do at that point? You know, they don't exactly. have, they so, don't have the money. Right. So and what, then, what you do know, you guys do? Morning, well, you know, we were just doing what we can, but then the pressure from Japan was to sell Dynalite uh, because it was just a, a venture that was no longer viable. Uh, so 
the pressure was put on on the Japanese side, their banks, to comment and say, well, listen, you guys just got to get rid of Dynalite. So Dynalite was put for sale. Uh, I was actually going through a divorce at about that same time, so it was kind of like a perfect opportunity for me to start over again. And uh, there was somebody looking at to purchase Dynalite, and we were going through the due diligence of all that. And Yeah, I bet uh, that's a lot of work. Oh, oh, absolutely. And I started to take offense to the company that was looking to buy us because, you know, they were trying to get us at the lowest possible price. That's sure. business. I understand that. But at some point, it started to get personal to me. Uh, I knew that we weren't as bad as they were making it sound. Mm -hmm. So uh, I uh, called up a buddy of mine who was at Merrill Lynch, and I said, hey, let's have lunch. So me, him, and an accountant friend of mine, we had lunch. Uh, I brought all the books to Dino, uh, from Dynalife for them to review. I said, my point of view was, if you strip out the fiasco what that was our European uh, attempt, right. we were profitable. And they agreed after looking at the books. So uh, my friend Bobby said, from Merrill Lynch said, all right, this is what you got to do. You got to write a business plan. I'll uh, get it in the right hands of the people at Merrill Lynch. He says, but other than that, I'm out because I can't get that close involved, but I can tell you who to send it to and all that. Right, right. So I, I uh, went to the computer store, found some software, Palo Alto, uh, how to write a business plan. So I did that Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday, I presented him a very rough copy. He looked over it and he said, okay, he critiqued it. So then the next two weeks, I polished it. And then I presented it to Merrill Lynch. Now you're doing all this, like you, have you ever written a business plan before? Is there a CFO oh, no. or anybody in the company you can lean on? Or is this just all you forging through the forest? Forging through the forest. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I just was pissed that, uh, you know, that they were making the company sound horrible. And I was looking to be the white knight on the, you know, at the last minute coming in to rescue the company. Right. And which is what happened. So Merrill Lynch agreed on my proposal. Uh, Comet agreed on my proposal. And uh, I was able to take ownership of the company in April of 97. Okay. So I jokingly, uh, I joked with my friends because I was the first person that of all my friends that was a million dollars in debt. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you immediately pull out of Europe? Did you decide, okay, that's done? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. no, uh, that was, I just ceased all those operations, just cut all those ties and just said, sorry, uh, it's not in our game plan to do this. Now, I'm guessing by now you guys are no longer in the third floor of that building in Jersey. Oh, no, no. We had moved several times. Uh, we uh, were originally in Irvington. Then we moved to Montclair, uh, New Jersey. Uh, we were above a movie theater in Montclair. That's when I joined the company. And then from Montclair, we moved to uh, Kenilworth, which was about 20 miles away. 
then from Kenilworth, we went to Union. I'm sorry, Hillside. And then from Hillside to Union, which was my hometown. You were constantly changing that business and, card. <laughs> and, uh, well, the, the interesting thing, when we moved to Union, uh, the building we moved into was a, a, a stalwart of the industry back then. It was Larson Studios. They did all of the uh, high school photos. Right. Yeah. And that was the building we moved into. Uh, so it was kind of interesting on that. There was a photographic connection. A, okay, so what kind of building does a Dynalite look for? Something where you can have like a, a makeshift studio, uh, obviously the product development, like a big lab area for the engineers to just sort of break things and try to make stuff? I mean, what do you, what do you look for? Well, primarily we we're looking for a studio area. Absolutely. Uh, we use the studio area, not for just testing, but also for, uh, seminars and, uh, workshops. Uh, we had invited, uh, particularly Kane university was right down the road from us. So we would invite their students in and have classes. Okay. So we definitely needed a certain amount of studio. So in union, we had a very nice, uh, 40 by 40 foot room, which was our studio. Uh, we had a, a beautiful production area that was about uh, 6,000 square feet of that. You know, you need storage because, right. uh, you know, you're importing and, uh, you know, for inventory. Uh, and then, of course, your normal offices and research uh, service center area. But, you know, the service center area didn't really need that much room. Right. I, I think if we had 600 square feet for the service, it was a lot. And then, of course, parking. Yeah. <laughs> Got to park those cars. In 1997, when you take over, how big is the company? How many employees do you have? Uh, I believe we were at around 20, about 24 employees at the time. Okay. Uh, sales, now, I, uh, it was somewhere around $4 million. Now, what's the org chart look like at this point? Have you brought in good people, bad people that you, you, know, you wish you hadn't, uh, engineers that are young, old? Like, what are you trying to accomplish? Well, the uh, – and, and in all I said, I was probably, in hindsight, uh, that was one of the, my weaker areas was in uh, talent acquisition. My service guy, my right-hand guy, uh, John Pizarras, who – uh, still is actually repairing Dynalites for anybody that is interested. I will. Uh, I'll need to talk to John. Yeah, he's, he's actually uh, employed by my landlord, so he's still going to the exact building that he had for many years. Uh, he's just getting a paycheck from someone else now. <laughs> but uh, he is doing repairs on the side. Okay. Uh, yeah, I brought in some people that were... Uh, talent that I knew from other people in the business, and that's more of the manufacturing side of the business. Uh, like my purchasing agent, he was a uh, a guy that worked for one of the subcontractors. He also worked for Martin Marietta at some point in his career. So he had a lot of technical expertise on soldering and also purchasing. Mm-hmm. Uh, bookkeeping, I had a I brought in a. a a bookkeeper or accountant uh, for sales. Uh, I went through a couple of different folks. Uh, Jim Morton was with us for many years. He came from House of Blood. Uh, Terry Monahan was in charge for sales for a while. Yeah. 
Honestly, I forget where I got Terry from, but uh, afterwards he went on to work at Shamira for many years and before retiring. Uh, let's see, who else did we have? Uh, other guys were just, you know, kind of popped up. Oh, you know, you hear of somebody in particular. Uh, definitely, I could have used uh, a an engineer uh, because my expertise was limited at that point. Uh, because as you're running the the company, you really can't further your education on that. And since I never had an extensive education on that, I was still more of, and I never claimed to be an engineer. Right. I always, I always said I was a repackager. Okay. I repackaged our circuitry and modified it and pushed the boundaries, but I really didn't come up with wholesale improvements. Any of the wholesale improvements were done by Paul because I still brought him in on a consultant basis, uh, along with a couple other engineers that I had heard good things about. So it was more of a, a specific job front that I would then, you know, find an engineer for that particular problem. Mm -hmm. Now at that time, there's two things coming or one's arrived, the internet and the other one is digital. How did those play into Dynalite's life in the nineties? Well, the first thing I remember of digital, everyone kept saying, Oh, you need so much less light. You need so much less light, which I never bought into, uh, F8, F8 doesn't make a difference whether it's F8 on the digital sensor or F8 on a film. The advantage digital did give you was to start pushing ISOs because, you know, in the film days, 1600 was basically maxed out and right. it was horrible. Yeah. I, I remember uh, at um, Rich Clarkson's workshops at the Olympic training facility, seeing all these old photos that were 1,600-speed film pushed to God knows what. Oh, yeah. They are horrible. I mean, they were state-of-the-art of the day. Sure. But in hindsight, seeing what was happening, actually speaking of, uh, of uh, his workshops, I remembered the first few times I went there, Kodak used to send out two tractor trailers to do all on-site processing. Yeah, yeah. And... and the next year, it was, well, they took over a mini lab in town. And then the following year, no Kodak, Epson printers were everywhere, and it was digital. I mean, the transaction literally in that sense was uh, three years. Right. You know, when two tractor trailers to taking over to uh, a local. A one-hour photo lab. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was in the course of those three years that it hit. Uh, so in the early days, there was a lot of misinformation about uh, digital, uh, but it did start affecting us. I mean, thankfully, the digital revolution just put so many cameras into people's hands. It's, it's astounding looking back at the numbers. Oh, God, uh, yes. I mean, the the collapse of the photo uh, the camera market is, is astounding. I mean, you're down, I believe it's 97% from the peak yeah. in 2010, where I think it was 121 million units produced. Now, a lot of that has shifted because it shifted to phones. So a lot of those digital throwaway cameras for recreation were included in that. 
that was all taken over by the digital, I mean, by the uh, cell phones and the Apple phones. Right. But uh, it's still been a, a decline uh, that's been going on. But in the early days, it was just more people thought they needed less light. But I, like I said, I never bought into that. How did you guys handle the internet with that approaching website? And now you got your, you know, a, basically a free billboard to show your product. It was just a matter of another tool in the, uh, in the war chest of uh, marketing. Uh, you know, the old thing about advertising is 50% of it's wasted. You just don't know which 50. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we were doing print ads. We were doing uh, uh, other things. You know, of course, with the digital, uh, the Internet, you have to get a website. So now that's another person that is going to be responsible for handling your website. Uh, marketing is a little different. And that's another area in hindsight. I probably should have been a little more aggressive in uh, email marketing, which we didn't really do uh, enough of. Uh but in today's day and age, you really need someone savvy on, you know, where to spend your dollars. It, it is mind-blowing that you can just look up something on the web out of curiosity, and then for the next week, you just get these pop-up ads everywhere of that product you were looking right, for. Right, yeah. Having that finesse now is fantastic. And that's why, the you know, the well, besides the fact that print media was dying, uh, it's so hard to advertise in that. And we also started uh, doing more uh, sponsorship. Uh, that we were sponsoring the Slanted Lens uh, mm -hmm. with uh, J.P. Morgan. I love his style of, of uh, presentation. Uh, so we were spending some ad dollars there with, uh, with the Slanted Lens. Uh, so we were, you know, we were trying different things. It's not like I had a, a definitive game plan. And I, always, I never felt I had enough money to spend. Although, you know, I was spending the arbitrary four and a half to five percent of sales in, in sales and marketing. Right. It just, I, I never really felt that I got my best bang for my buck. We went from small ad agencies doing it on the on the fly to more established ad agencies i didn't really see any difference in that so we you know we kind of hit uh you know we definitely hit every bad downturn uh and felt every downturn and the 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 upsides, we never quite got back to the last peak. So as the slide started happening, uh, it was more of just trying to adjust to the new norm. And they kept changing normal on me. Right, right. I mean, because I bought my first packs in 96, and I can still use that guy today. Um, but what in the in the 90s, what was developing or what could you have developed that could have had real impact maybe to uh, put the company in a better position? Because I remember at one point you guys had pocket wizards in your packs. Yep, no, we, yeah, and that was, again, a lot of people accused us of not being innovative. Well, we were one of the first to have integrated pocket wizards. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, that saved my butt so time. many times. Yeah. Uh, so that was one thing that we had done. Uh, a lot of people didn't like our particular style of our flash head. The 
the flash head that really gave us our fame was meant for the location photographer where you didn't bring a lot of reflectors with you. Because we were counting on you using a light bank of some sort mm -hmm. or an umbrella of some sort. Are you talking about so, the 2040 uh, or the... Correct. Yeah. Correct. That had an integrated, very wide angle uh, reflector. Mm -hmm. So for real world shooting, it was fantastic because you didn't need all these cumbersome things. Uh, you relied on the collapsible uh, modifier. Right. Again, softbox or umbrella, and you were good to go. Uh, we probably should have uh, come out with our own line of softboxes sooner. I did uh, go to Shamira for a couple of models because I didn't. I didn't want to just slap my name on something and just raise the cost for no reason. Right. But we did have Shamira make a couple of unique models for us. Uh, in an experimentation, I uh, slapped uh, one of the famous photographers of the day, Michael Greco, his name on it. So it was kind of his signature softbox. I remember that. Because he he always used Shamir softboxes. So this was, you know, I, uh, I inked a deal with him to license his name on that. Uh, so we were trying some different things. Was that successful? Uh, Did... uh, not really. Okay. No, not really. Uh, it... It was very limited, uh, and I wish I could tell you exactly why it wasn't as successful as it should have been, because they were fine products. I mean, usability was there. Uh, I basically just went in between a couple of Shamira models to come up with a new version of theirs, because, uh, you know, the Shamiras typically had the big zip closing in the back, and I didn't like that. Right. At the time, they had the Pro Bank, which had flaps, which were nicer in my opinion. So I integrated their flaps into another version where the the uh, front baffle was sewn in. So the idea there is you're on location. The last thing you need is one more thing to do. Uh, right. uh, let's get you shooting as fast as possible. So sew in the front baffle. Uh, so that was kind of a, a, a hybrid uh, solution. But it really didn't take off the way it should have. And I really don't know why. I think today with the ex explosion might be a silly word because it's been around for you know long now but everything's on youtube like you were just saying you're, you're looking at youtube for things had yeah. maybe there been a, an extreme youtube presence where you can go there and see every little bit because like adorama now has a presence on youtube and bnh and they've got product reviews and seminars and all kinds of stuff um i know Profoto's got a huge presence on it uh, maybe at that turn, that could have been something that could have helped. Yeah, I, at some point it was getting a little aggravating because, you know, we were trying all different things and none of it seemingly working. Uh, and all of them were good products. You know, you, were, you had mentioned about YouTube. One of the, the designs I did on the 2040, I did a redesign because I wanted that head to have the ability to be a video head. Okay. So I redesigned it. I was looking at trying to take every attribute of that head and maximize it because it was going to be the last version of that head. So at the time, monoblocks were becoming more and more popular. Right. So the big thing with this head was it was small and light. So I wanted to modify it to be even smaller, even lighter. And I then changed it to 
have the ability to have the model lamp accept a 650-watt modeling light, which in essence made it a hot light. Okay. And one of the first heads that we did, we did a small prototype run and had them out in some hands. Uh, uh, sorry, his name just escaped me. Richard, uh, oh, Ricardel. Okay. Ricardel. I'm missing out his first name. Vincent Ricardel. Uh, he actually used the those heads as hot lights for a uh, video he was doing, and the video won an award for technical brilliance. Wow. So, uh, again, the great concept, but it never took off. Uh, I was always perplexed because, A, when I redesigned the head, it was only, you know, I was nibbling on the edges, but it just... The final result was more than the than all of the things I changed. It just like wow, this really came out good, and it didn't make a difference. And nobody was doing the six fifty. Actually, I was just laughing to myself the other day. I was reading on DP Review about somebody that was saying, "Hey, does anyone make a strobe that does hot lights?" <laughs> yeah, now, now you come asking. <laughs> Yes, uh, bitch. Where were you a couple of years ago? <laughs> <laughs> but thankfully, the moderator—I uh, well, don't know if he's the actual official moderator—but Els Venner uh, said, "Oh yeah, Dynalite made those. Uh, not only in the Dynalite head, but also we had started importing uh, some product from Korea. And one of the attributes of that was that it was a monoblock that you could put a 650-watt modeling light in." Wow, that is a lot of light. Yeah, absolutely. How many of those heads did you make? To, uh, to did it make any kind of dent? No, no, it, it didn't stem the the uh, slide at all. Uh, at that point, now we're to, now we kind of fast forward into right. more of like after the two thousand eight collapse. Well, I, I still want to go uh, through the nineties because I I think that's okay. because I think that's the most interesting point um, for the light companies. They were, st I felt when I was in school, it was very much important. Like you had to know strobes. Like my first assignment was a glass ball and I had to light it 32 different ways. They don't teach strobes anymore. And, you know, even barely even a on-camera flash. It's all like available light. You can go to 20,000 ISO and you make it work. You can make beautiful pictures with strobes, and they're not teaching it in college. So then you had professors who didn't know strobes or lighting, weren't comfortable with it, weren't teaching it. So now you have a generation of kids, they didn't find it important. They didn't see a need for it. And I think that started to hurt you guys moving into the 2000s and 2010s. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, the, the concept that you don't need light is ridiculous. Oh. You absolutely need light. Uh, one of my favorite uh, photographers that I ever met, uh, David Meese, uh unbelievable photographer. He has the ability to see the light that I, I just haven't seen anyone else to his level. Because the, you know, the human eye sees light different than the way camera sees light. And he can interpret that in his head instantaneously. Uh, I, I, I gave him a comment once that 
uh, where people would talk about Dale Earnhardt being able to see the air coming off the car in front of him. You know, that's kind of like how David is with seeing light. I've been on many sets with him on workshops where he said, oh, we'll just throw a light over there. And it's like, why? He says, you'll see. And sure enough, I mean, all of a sudden, like this one uh, seminar or workshop I did with him, he just threw a head in a, in a bathroom because he knew that the light was going to look like it was light was on in the bathroom. And it just fell out of the, the bathroom onto the the uh, main area perfectly. It was just little things like that that he did so nonchalantly, uh, which just amazes me. And just so, that little light can change the whole scene, the whole feel of a photo. Yeah, absolutely. Those little accent lights that you don't think about. You know, that's one area that I... In my experimentation, uh, I always like to push the limit. So I had a lot of photos where I was dragging the shutter to like a tenth of a second because in my one house in New Jersey, I had these beautiful white birches in the background. And when the setting sun was coming, that just looked fantastic. I bet. So how do you bring that light in and then light something in front of you? Well, you mix and match strobe with ambient. Uh I had experiments the other way where I was assisting on a New York Knicks cheerleader shoot and she was, the cheerleader was jumping up on a trampoline. Well, I wasn't on my lights. So how am I going to get the shot? Well, you go for like a half second exposure. You start timing yourself with the guy that's actually on the lights and he goes up. I open my shutter. At some point he's going to fire the strobes off. I get the same photo he did. So you, you learn to cheat a little bit. Right. And that's kind of me pushing around with the experimentation of things. That's why high-speed high sync came out. I loved playing around with high-speed sync. Great segment, way, because that's what I was going to ask. What, what did it take for the high-speed sync to become like moving it from 60th, 125th to 250, and then it kind of seemed like it stalled? Where was the break? Well, part of that is... The, the camera itself. I mean, the curtain takes a certain amount of time to cover the sensor. Thankfully, uh, Pocket Wizard did do a lot of experimentation with that. They were playing around with their uh, hypersync. Mm -hmm. But really, it was the combination of the, the camera's TTL, which is a whole other subject, <laughs> uh, along with the 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 IGBT in the flash is really what allowed uh, high-speed sync to go. It's, it's a two-part process. Hypersync does one part of it. High-speed sync does both pieces of the equation. Part of the equation is just the timing, waiting for the flash to be fully illuminated and that the curtain's not going to be affected or in the way. Uh, so the timing you can actually do with just... Like uh, Godox has these, uh, you know, one of the big competitors I wound up having to deal with. But their transmitters are wonderful in that you can put dial in a delay. So with any studio strobe, you can go to high-speed sync. Or as I really should call it high sync. Okay. Because high-speed sync is part of the new generation strobes where the IGBT, which is isolated uh, IG gate bipolar thyristor. Sorry, it's been a few years. Right, uh, I understand. 
The uh, and what actually happens there is the strobe actually fires multiple times so fast that it does not appear to be flashing. It just looks like one flash. Jesus. But for the camera, for the curtain to be covering the sensor, there is light at every single point of that sensor because yeah. it's the flash is now in essence ambient. And the other side of that is, and that delay factor is that if you wait for the flash to be at full intensity before you start the curtain to move, you could, in essence, if the flash duration is long enough, it would appear to be ambient. So you can play either way of doing it. I've actually gotten with some Dynalites in high speed or high sync out to two thousandths of a second. That would Whenever have been nice. I shot the New York Mets team photo, I would always do it in uh, using the Pocket Wizard Flexes units with the Dynalites, and I'd always shoot at 500th of a second because I didn't want the same photograph that the team photographer was doing. Right. I wanted something a little different, so I would always darken the ambient by a stop. And how would that look? Better? Oh, it would look, I, I think it looked better, but the Mets organization always wanted a more mainstream look, whereas when you're purposely a little more toward the edge of lighting, you know, in all honesty, it does look a little fake. Right. But me being a lighting guy, I want to show more of the lighting aspect of it and what can be achieved versus just, you know, a tried and true method of, oh, here's a fantastic photo. Right, yeah. And, and everybody has this uniform look they're going for. And if something starts to look different, they get nervous. Exactly. Yeah. So were you pushing then that sync for your guys' to just match up and be like, hey, we, we've got packs. We can do this with our lights. It's up to the camera companies to get their shit in line. Uh, well, once I, I learned that I could do it with the Dynalites, yeah, that was something I definitely spread the, the word. Uh, matter of fact, uh, J.P. Morgan in The Slanted Lens had a couple of episodes where he was showing how to do it. And it was actually something that was known and forgotten. Wow. Because after I started doing some research, after I started looking at this, I came up some articles of people talking about how to do it. And I didn't realize it, that, you know, it was just archived data. I actually showed the guy, uh, the sales rep at Photo, that it worked on his units, too. And he was dumbfounded. Wow. That's, how do you miss that one? Uh, where, where did you guys start to get into battery packs? Was that in the 90s or 2000s? Oh, that was definitely in the 2000s. Uh, we had, we had, uh, I, you know, I saw that, you know, we needed to be out on the road. So I developed a inverter unit uh, for portable AC. So this way you can use your tried and true Dynalites uh, out wherever you wanted. So that was an internal design. Uh, it worked well. It uh, was a bit expensive, unfortunately. The main inverter circuit that I outsourced was from a uh, company out of Texas, and they made uh, really, really good inverters, but they're also very expensive. So that kind of was downside. So I basically paired up uh, the best battery I can find, which was a uh, AGM battery from uh, jet skis. So it could handle, you know, shock and abuse and AGM batteries just are, are very good on, on forgiveness. 
with one of the best uh, chargers that I could find. Originally, I just designed in a battery tender. And then I, uh, you know, the AC inverter section, and then I just called it together to, to make it a, a product. Yes. And, you know, that worked well. Uh, it was a, a little too heavy, uh, but this was before lithium really took off, so right. there was no real options at the time. And the big competitor I had at the time was the Profoto battery pack unit. But our advantage was, well, while you have AC, well, then don't worry about bringing the battery. Only take the extra weight when you need it. Mm-hmm. And it did work extremely well. And then after that, I actually imported a rebadged Godox unit as a uh, Dynalite, and that was the uh, XP800. And again, nice unit, but the sales on that tailed off dramatically. Really? Uh, yeah, and I never understood why. But I guess in hindsight, it was because the there was the new breed of battery-powered monoblocks coming. I mean, there was the Ellen Chrome uh, Ranger units, and uh, Fotex came out with their unit, which was a basically a pack-and-head system which I thought was going to be very successful. And this is one area where I would have definitely went down the wrong, wrong uh, avenue because I was in more in the camp of liking a power pack and head system where the head can be very, very small and lightweight up on the top of a light stand mm-hmm. and putting the weight down low where it could be a, uh, a stand weight. Right. But lo and behold, that's not where the market wound up going. I know, isn't market that wound funny? Up going at- yeah. Yeah. All the stuff now is top heavy. They wanted it all built in. Yeah. Yeah, everything top heavy. Uh, it's funny. Uh, I go to photo shows, look at new product. Were you going to battery shows and electronic shows to find, I guess, a capacitor or a battery or a charger for stuff? I mean, was that part of your schedule? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In In just trying to have an idea and think of things like when I did the inverter unit, you know, finding that uh, inverter company that I used in tech from Texas, uh, finding the battery that I wanted. A lot of that was just research. And then I was reading, uh, supplemental areas like, uh, particularly on the batteries. I was reading a lot of forums from the remote control uh, community, mm-hmm. uh, RC planes and whatnot. Cause you know, they, had a lot of good testing done on batteries that I didn't have to perform myself. I was just looking at their test data. Right. Uh, so in developing some of that, yeah, I was going from that. Actually, we kind of missed an area from the from the nineties because uh, we we kind of skipped over the the switch over to monoblocks. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I let's give, talk about that. I got to give Paul C. Buff his his due credit here. Yeah, because uh, he did have a huge huge following. I, I I think that following is not anywhere near as what it used to be. But uh, when he came out with his first white lightnings, that was definitely some uh, extreme competition to us. Did anybody see that coming? Uh, again, no, and you know it's strange. Uh, the way he marketed was very different. Uh, he didn't really do trade shows. Well, he actually didn't do any trade shows. Uh, he didn't do much advertising because uh, he had run into Paul was from 
I've only met the man once or twice, uh, so I don't know him that well. Or, but he apparently was uh, a little rough around the edges if he got on his wrong side. Okay. And some of the magazines got on his wrong side, so he just stopped advertising and did other things. But some of the things that I was looking to do, like mass emails, well, I had bought some of his products to analyze it, and I never got an email. So I knew he wasn't doing email marketing. He didn't really have paid endorsers like I did. I, I put gear in a lot of people's heads to be influencers. So I guess that part I was ahead of my time, or at least on par with the time. Right. Not realizing how important influencers would become in the internet age. Yes. Uh, so there was a lot of things he didn't do uh, traditionally, but he was darn successful. He, he built a cult-like following. And he, one yeah, of the it's a perfect word he, for it. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things he did was he just stood behind his product. I mean, if you had a problem with his product, he said, well, here, here's another one. And uh, it was basically known that uh, if you ever had a problem with his units, and then he came out uh, that he would take care of it. And then he came out with the Einstein unit, which was a very good unit for the day. Uh, but again, uh, he, well, unfortunately, he had passed away, so I don't think he uh, was around for the battery switchover where everyone just wanted everything battery-powered. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the monoblocks, uh, that was probably one of the areas that, in hindsight, I mean, we had our Uni 400, which was very, very successful. And then we had the smaller brother to that, the Uni 250R. Uh, so they were very good. They were great products for us, but uh, a little higher price than the offerings from from Paul Seaboff. So uh, we didn't quite get the uh, the volume up that he had gotten with his White Lightnings. At one point, I was astounded when I had heard through the grapevine how many units he was producing. It just blew me away. I had no... And someone else, actually, uh, the guy from Bronkler, I believe, I was at a trade show uh, talking to uh, uh, the VP or president of Broncolor, and we were discussing Paul Buff, and it was so... We both had the same conclusion that we both had ignored him for too long and allowed him to grow too big. That's interesting. And we, 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 we basically just said, ah, he's just you know selling that stuff. He's just selling that stuff. Well, boy, he was selling a lot of that stuff. A lot of it, yeah, right. Because yeah, it, we, we, we definitely underestimated his his potential and his growth. And at one point, he was probably one of the dominant players. Uh, probably from like 95 to maybe 05, maybe 08. Wow. A lot of people don't realize how big White Lightning became. Yeah, I mean, and like you said, he, he, you didn't see him advertise, you didn't see anything, but you saw his stuff everywhere. Yeah, you go on a forum back then, it was all about him. Right. And, and his, was his that minutes. a price point? Because he was just selling the stuff for so cheap. Or at least the the yes. you know you can you could buy a whole kit for four or five hundred bucks. Well, the thing was he was selling direct, so and that was part of him not doing the traditional thing. He was selling direct, so he didn't have to worry about the dealer cut. Right. He didn't have to worry about salesman commissions or sales rep commissions. Mm -hmm. 
he didn't have any of that. So he was he basically just said, hey, if I go straight to the end consumer, I can offer the same or better product for a good 30, 40% less. And that was huge. But again, you know, if you think back to the 90s, you know, there was no Amazon back then. We weren't doing that much uh, internet ordering. Right. You know, back then it was still the Sears catalog, maybe Montgomery Ward. I forget when they went out of business. But, you know, the, the concept of just selling all of your product direct to the customer was unique at that time. It was crazy. And boy, he, did it pay off. Right. It was crazy because that could have totally backfired on him. And God love him. He made it work. Yeah. Because he put a lot and of strobes in people's hands. At, yeah. And in the strobe business, it's not like it's a, a, a mass consumer market. I mean, other than your top tier dealers of B&H, Adorama, Sammy's, and back then Calumet, those are your like your top five nationwide. Then mm -hmm. you got your more regional players like a, a competitive camera, Dodd, uh, uh, West Photo up in Michigan. Uh, Roberts, maybe. Roberts, yeah. Uh, you know, that would be like your next tier down. And then it would be the mom and pops. But the mom and pops were primarily selling ProMaster stuff, you know, whatever the sales rep came in to visit you. You know, that's one area that Dynalite was never in. We we went more for the more exclusive dealers, the B&Hs of the world, the Sammies of the world. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, yeah, I don't really think that was a mistake. I, I would have preferred a slightly larger dealer base. But, you know, I always analyze what Profoto was doing. And Profoto had the, basically the same dealer base we had. Uh, right. They didn't really expand much beyond the, the top-notch guys because at some point you get diminishing returns. Did you look at Profoto? Is that your, your direct line competitor? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Paul Buff, actually, in the early days, uh, we used to hang out with uh, a couple of people from Paul, from Paul Buff. I mean, we would go to a uh, – well, actually, back then, they were doing trade shows. But, uh, yeah, we would hang out and just have a drink, and we were on friendly terms. Because, again, at that point, we didn't really have conflicting products. You know, it's like the pickup guy – complaining to the Ferrari dealer that the Ferrari dealer's taking his sales. Right. Not really. Not happening. Yeah. Yeah, you're so, either buying uh, that we Ford F-150 or not. So it's like, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, you're either buying the Dynalite or you're not. There's no like, well, if they only had, no. Yeah, and I actually, I, I actually use that analogy several times. So, you know, I don't think there were that many guys that were thinking of wrong color and at the last minute decide, no, I'm going to get Dynalite, or vice versa. Right, right. Not many guys are looking at a, a Rolls-Royce or a Bentley and said, you know what, I changed mine. I'm going for the Impala. Yeah, well, I was also, this is the thing I used to tell students, no client, not ever has a client ever asked me, so what lights are you using? They don't care. It's, it's up no, to you. It's up to you. Yeah, it's up to you. If you're making the pictures with whatever you've got, they're going to pay you because that's what they're, they're, you know, they want from you is these images. So nobody's saying, well, we're only going to hire you if you're using bronze color because, you know, we just really prefer that on the set. No, never said. Nobody's ever said that.
Just make the pictures. Now, that does come into play at rentals, though. Yes. Because rental studios, that's a whole other uh, mystique going on there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of song and dance. You've know, yeah. you got to have that, that $5,000 espresso maker. You've got to have this. You've got to have that. A lot of it is just smoke and mirrors. Right. And, uh, again, that was an area that we were definitely not strong with. Uh I, I used to joke, uh, who was the big guy in New York? Pure, Pure 39? Yeah. Pure yep. 41? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yep. One of those years. Uh, I couldn't get my foot in the door to get slammed on in, in that place. Uh, he, I remember at one trade show, uh, Walter Melrose, which was Mola Reflectors, had introduced this very obscure big SETI reflector, and he designed it so that there is a flash tube built in, and you can actually shoot through it. So, in essence, it was a giant ring light. Okay. But with all the reflector quality. It was a one-off. We brought it over to the Pier 39, Pier 41, and whatever that rental studio was, and put it there with a Comet pack, because I knew they wouldn't want it with a Dynalite pack. So I took one of the digital readout Comet packs, just to, and we wired it for Comet, just so that they can try it out. Not a single person tried it. Really? Which blew my mind. Yeah, it was there for about three or four weeks, and the guy said, you might as well pick this up. Nobody's even trying it. And I was like, damn, talk about you know, having a totally different client mindset. But, you know, the pro photo hats off. They, they got into that mindset and they, they, they understood it. Do you think that was a, a literally a look thing, the sleek black, the knobs, its presence kind of made it? Uh, Well, again, I I mentioned earlier that the acutes, I never, the, the acutes are ugly. I mean, let's, Let's call it what it is. The, the other pro photo units, yes, they did start producing wonderful-looking units. But, uh, and that's the difference because the rental studios were renting the, the high-end, you know, the $10,000, $12,000 packs. <sighs> but the mainstream users were getting the acutes. Mm-hmm. So it was like... Yeah, it wasn't the same thing. I mean, realistically, it should have been you know almost fraud because it's like, yeah, here's this Ferrari, and then find out it's got a uh, a little uh, Volkswagen engine. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) and it can't get out of first gear. I mean, because they just you know, Profoto just announced a couple weeks ago a new pack of sixteen thousand five hundred dollars. Yeah, and I, I can't. Imagine a company more tone deaf, not looking at the industry going, photographers haven't worked in a year. What the hell are you doing putting this out? Who's going to buy it? I agree. And in general, there was a downtrend even before COVID uh, against studios. I know we lost one of our big users uh, in Pier 1. I mean, they had a ton of Dynalites at Pier 1 Studios. Uh, you know, when Pier 1 closed their doors, that was one of the biggest studios gone. Oh. And, you know, even before COVID, the rental business just isn't what it used to be. Right. Uh, so I, I'm not sure where they're, where they're expecting these packs to go. 
the the number of users are very slim. But then again, uh, you know, even through the downturn, uh, you know, Ferrari had some of their best years ever. I personally don't know where a Ferrari dealer is, but apparently they were selling a lot of them. So. <laughs> Yeah, well, if you come out to LA, I'll take you the one out in Beverly Hills. Well, I'll show you where it's at because <laughs> I've only driven by it. I've never gone into it, but I, I know where it's at. Did uh, well, sometimes when you're so out of your market, you, you and that's what happened to me. I just didn't comprehend the that high end market. It was so elusive to me. Uh, it would you know be like the Beverly Hills Billies, you know, going into. Uh, uh, Versace, right? You know, it just apples and oranges. And there's plenty of you know big, big businesses. Like I said, Paul Buff did a fantastic job uh, making a name for himself and uh, making a lot of units. Dynalite for 40 years uh, provided uh, you know good living for me and uh, all the employees I had. Yeah, you know, could we have done better? Absolutely, but. Boy, it was it was definitely some good times. Right. I mean, when when are you feeling the China crush? You know, China's coming. When do you start to feel that? That was really about twenty about twenty twelve, twenty fourteen in that neighborhood. The because uh, I already had mentioned that. Uh, I had private labeled a, a Godox unit for Dynalite. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also then went to Korea. I inked a deal with a company in Korea, Rhymelite, to market their products here in the United States. That I thought was going to be huge for us because it gave me all of the light modifiers, the light banks, uh, soft boxes that Dynalite never had that changed me from a strobe company to a lighting company. And because I was getting them at the right prices, I didn't feel like I was just marking up Shamira stuff. I was getting in on the ground floor. Okay. And I didn't want just to offer cheap Chinese stuff. I wanted something better. And the the Rhyme Light stuff definitely was fantastic. Now, I made one small mistake in hindsight where I actually did call them Rhyme Lights for a very brief moment. <laughs> before I integrated them into just be Dynalite products. Okay. Uh, so I, I realized that fairly early, and I did pivot from there and then just put Dynalite's name on it. Uh, again, was not as successful as I thought I should have been. Uh, the products were aggressively priced. I basically looked at what Westcott was offering, what uh, uh, the other guy not photogenic. Photoflex. Uh, what Photoflex was okay. offering. Yeah. Uh, and made sure that my prices were in line. I also made sure that the dealer cuts were appropriate. And I, it just never took off the way I thought it would. So that was a, a disappointment. And again, I thought we were doing everything right. Uh, it just didn't materialize. Did you ever get the sense that maybe they were uh, stealing any property or uh, putting it into their stuff, any Chinese companies? Because I know that's just been an issue in general. No, because by this point, the the style of uh, units that Dynalite had, the writing was on the wall. Uh, you know, the power pack side of the business was on the de- decline. 
uh, it was either going to be monoblocks or, more importantly, battery-powered monoblocks. Okay. The the power pack business had peaked and is gone. Uh, I mean, the nail in the coffin was when Profoto announced that they were discontinuing the Qtes. I forget what year that was. I think it was like 2016. And I thought that was going to be a uh, a little bit of a boost for Dynalite, but it, I didn't notice a blip whatsoever. It was just they were such on a decline, kind of like the DSLR is to mirrorless now. Right. It just was a change. Uh, I had joked to someone uh, that I now I know how medium format must have felt back in 2000. <laughs> because, you know, you had all this wonderful product and then all of a sudden nobody wanted it. Right. I think what happened to the the traditional pack and head system is what happened to medium format when digital came around. It just a great product, but nobody wanted to go that direction anymore. Yeah, because I, I've bought a ton of your stuff. You know, guys had it everywhere. I mean, McDonough was running around the country with it. You had it in arenas all over the place. It's amazing how it just it ceased, just stopped. Well, the arenas were my last hope. Uh, we had some success in that. We never got success with the NBA, primarily because of the NBA. Uh, there was just some private side deals apparently going on where the NBA was locked in with Speedatron. Uh, thankfully, I had gotten some great results with uh, Lenny Redcoles from the Philadelphia Flyers. Mm-hmm. Uh, unbelievable images and the system I had designed was technically very good the flash duration was through the roof I mean it measured on the Sekonic light meter at like three thousandths of a second at full power is this the last one you Uh, built the 1600 pack yeah 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 the 1600 pack uh so that was unbelievable. The sharpness of, of Lenny's photos were unbelievable. And other guys in the, in the NHL were looking at these photos saying, oh, I got to have this. Yeah. So because of the success we had with the Flyers, we got the Red Wings, we got the Oilers, the Maple Leafs, uh, uh, New York Islanders, I think was my last sale. I don't know if that system ever got installed. Uh, but it was just... You know, that was my hope. And, you know, and particularly when you get the arenas, you're not selling a couple of packs. Like for the Maple Leafs, I think that was 60-some power packs went up to Toronto. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was an insane number of packs. Because they did uh, the whole for, arena, the, right? Is that what they did? Yeah. 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 And that was, because of that, that was also our only NBA because it was in Canada, and the guy that was running the uh, Maple Leafs uh, arena, you know, basically ran it for the the Raptors. Right. And actually, the the photo of the year uh, from, or or sports photo award or whatever, I I forget exactly who got the award, uh, but it was actually a strobe shot from a, a Raptor game. That's great. That is great. So there is still some business there for that. Yeah, I, I, I live and die by my strobes. I, I, I love them to death. I can't imagine using anything less uh, or shooting available. Oh God, that's awful. I don't know. But anybody. the technology, not only on the camera front, front has evolved so, so beyond anyone's expectations. I remember shooting a, a rodeo 
on uh, I, I use it on Nikon D500. Uh, I shot a rodeo at it's like eight o'clock at night, so I was like at twenty five thousand ISO, and I'm looking at this image saying, "This can't be." I mean, how is it this good? Right. It just blows you away. I mean, if someone would have showed that to the uh, you know 1979. Peter uh, on the third floor of that building and said, hey, take a look at this. This is going to be the future at some point. You never would have believed him. You had mentioned about the digital, you know, how did that affect? It wasn't necessarily that you needed to change light. You don't. Because ideally, I'm in the camp. If you're being hired, you produce the best possible image. Mm -hmm. Not the best possible image of what you happen to bring that day. Right. So... In the old days, that meant you lugging up how many cases of gear to go do a photo shoot. Yeah. Unfortunately, and you probably know this better than I, because I've just been hearing it from guys like you, uh, nowadays, nobody wants to pay you to do that shot anymore. Yeah, right. And at some point, in your mind, you're saying, well, why am I busting my ball so much of lugging these 18 cases? If they're not going to pay me for lugging it, at some point, the human element comes into play. Right. Well, for as yeah. much as you want to produce the the reason people go and hire you as Matt Brown, unfortunately, at some point when people just continually degrade you, your profession and saying, well, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll give you, well, I'll give you 400 bucks. No, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. <laughs> And at some point you say, well, you know what? If you aren't going to pay me $400, you are going to get the $400 version of Matt, not the what I should be earning. Right. And, and, the, other, and the other scary part is, is when you're not using them and you're looking at them in the garage or your storage and you're like, I haven't moved those packs and those light stands and those sandbags in months. What am I doing yeah. with all this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. And it's just a uh, the wormhole. Yeah. It just starts going downhill real quick. Yeah, yeah your, and, your bright white paper has now turned to 18% gray because it's been <laughs> sitting there <laughs> getting dusty and UV rays are eating up on it. Oh. No, and, and unfortunately, it's a story I heard way too many times. And then to hear, like, you know, one area that you think you can make a good living at is being a real estate photographer. Yeah. Because let's face it, what sells houses these days? It's the photographs. Mm -hmm. But I've heard over and over again, you know, realtors, well, I'll give you 200, I'll give you 250. All right, so you want to, you want me to drive somewhere that may take me half hour, 45 minutes, an hour to get to, and then, I, you know, return trip back to basically borrow my camera, which is, by the way, $6,000, right. and use these, X number of lenses that, oh, that one's 1,000, that one's 2,000, that one's 4,000. And then I got to basically clean the house because, you know, let's face it, you got to make sure the house is in proper order. Right. And photograph this and then come back, manipulate a certain amount of images on the screen so you, you can then make your $35,000 commission <laughs> and only give me $250. Yeah, talk about a slap in the face. Uh-huh. I'll ride my bike over there. I'll use my phone and I'll send them to you. I'll just text you the photos. That's that's what's uh, two hundred dollars is going to get you. 
Yeah, and that's the, the, the part that I, I really feel bad. I mean, obviously, I was a victim to the, the uh, new economy uh, to a certain degree. You know, part of it, let's face it, there are still strobe companies doing quite well out there. And, you know, part of uh, what happened to Dynalite was, you know, me not reacting fast enough. But part of it, too, is, and I mentioned the decline in the camera production. You know, you're talking about a 97% drop in the digital cameras. Camera production now is equal to what it was back in about 1978 to 1981, depending upon what parameters you're looking at. And the lighting aspect is an accessory. In all honesty, it's just an accessory to the camera. And then on top of that, now you have the not modern cameras that can do unbelievable lighting. And even if the, you're not pushing the IS, uh, ISO to the extremes, let's say you just clicked it to. Well, that means your 800 pack or one second pack is now a 400 or even a 200. And that's why it was the perfect timing and perfect storm for me uh, for companies like Godox, where they happen to have had all the things falling in place for them. And kudos to them. They had the insight to have those products in, in the pipeline ready to go. You know, the lithium technology was there at the right time. The the fact that the cameras don't have to shoot at 100 to really produce a fantastic image. Really, you're going to see a difference between 100, 200, or 400? I don't think so. Right. On paper, yeah, you can see the dynamic range drop off, but, uh, you know, it's still way, way, way good enough. Uh, and then just the people migrating to that. And, of course, now the price point. You know, when Profoto came out with their $2,000 speed lights, I'm sure they sold a fair amount of them, but if you can buy this, virtually the same thing from Godox for 300 bucks, that's going to be fine, especially if your clients aren't paying you. Right. It's hard to justify that $2,000 Profoto anymore. And even with, with uh, for whatever reason, I know a lot of guys like you are sports photographers. You know, those long lenses you guys use, they're not cheap. And if you really had to amortize the, the cost of that that uh, 600 mil or, or whatever, you know, what are those, right? $12,000, $14,000? Yeah. You know, how many photos do you have to sell to justify owning that? <laughs> A ton. A ton. And, you know, it, 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 the numbers just aren't there anymore. And it's a, it's a sin. And not only does it affect you as a sports photographer or you as a general photographer, it affects everyone in the supply chain. Because now if the you're not earning it, you can't spend it. That's kind of simplistic uh, economics. I, mean, I mentioned that I basically just had a high school education and, and – Probably my downfall was not having a, uh, more education for economics, but I always tried to keep it simple. Uh, you know, basic things can just make sense. You know, if you make a lot, you can spend a lot. If you end, uh, create a value for someone, you, you're going to sell that product. And the thing that killed me at the end was just that Godox was providing a better value 
than what I could provide. And I was late in the game of doing the switch over to battery-powered monoblocks. And as I mentioned earlier, I would have bet on the wrong source there. Right, right. I really thought that a separate power pack system would have been the way to go. But boy, was I, I wrong on that. Now, because you, all of the popular ones now are all one-piece battery included. I know. That's the crazy thing. I mean, where... We we said Godox's name several times. I, I saw him at uh, CES a couple of years ago. I mean, they just got a huge presence. Who who's backing them and how? Like, is that is that now the company moving forward? Do you see doing the right stuff? In my opinion, yes. And you know, they also took a. I don't know if they knowingly took a page from Paul Z. Buff, but there are some things about Godox that were different. They did not ink a distribution agreement with any particular person or company. Uh, at one point, you could have gotten Godox under five different names. You could have gotten it as a Calumet. You can get it as a B&H. Uh, forget the B&H name now, right now. Right. Uh, Flashpoint in Adorama, uh, Cheetahstan for that guy down in Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, there were just so many companies selling Godox or variants of Godox, and nobody had an exclusive. Uh, B&H obviously is doing a fair amount of business with them, so is Adorama. Uh, then the other guys kind of got together and said, well, we do need some sort of distributor, so... I believe it's uh, Roberts and, uh, oh, who was the other guy? Midwest Photo, I think, got together and started importing uh, at, uh, Godox kind of as the importer. Okay. But you can still get it under so many different names. Uh, it, it's quite amazing. And when's the last time, or did you ever see an ad for Godox? N not at all. I never saw them no, until I was at CES, and I was like, who Who are these yeah. guys? They have spent zero dollars on advertising. Absolutely zero. I never saw an ad for Godox. No, no, never. But their presence at CES was amazing. They had a huge booth. They let you try everything. They had a whole setup. I mean, they really let you touch the stuff and try to use yep. it. And then just gave out every hour they were giving away stuff, trying to put it in people's hands. So kind of in the same vein of, of Paul C. Buff, there were no distributor. So there was no distributor markup. Mm -hmm. There are no sales reps. So there's no sales rep earning a commission on that. Uh, no advertising. So those things are identical to what Paul Buff did. Now, whether they did that knowingly or not, I don't know. But those three aspects are the same. Plus, they, I don't really think they have any influencers out there. They didn't need them. I mean, people at that point were just making videos on their own. Right, yeah. You, know, you get guys like uh, Jared Poland with the uh, Fronos. I mean, he, he's done a wonderful job marketing himself. Right. And he needs content. He doesn't necessarily need, like he jokes, the, the Sony truck to back up to him. He's making more money on just people watching his videos. Mm -hmm. So uh, other people are doing that. So they're just 
on their own creating videos, hoping to make a couple of the YouTube dollars. Right. So they don't need to pay anybody. I'm sure there's some guys that are on their exclusive list, but uh, I'm sure it's a short list. They don't need it. No, because if you can review 150 products on YouTube, you're going to get more eyeballs than if you're stuck with one you know, company that only has 12 products. Right. Because there's a ton so, of content uh, being made on YouTube for that kind of review. And the other thing, and this should probably scare Profoto more than anybody else, they are also being innovative. Yeah. They're not just re I mean, yeah, they're, they're copying some of Profoto's overall shapes and designs, but uh, let's face it, coming out with a round head isn't earthbreaking. It's not patentable, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. but that's for the lawyers to figure out. But, uh, you know, they are creating a wonderful product uh hats off to them you know i thought the the stuff that i was doing with rhyme light was going to be uh by godsend my issue is my new unit was late uh because i had the b5 ready to go and unfortunately there were some technical issues where i basically skipped over the first generation because i knew there was a radio issue Mm -hmm. And I didn't want any issues. So I waited for the second incarceration of it. And that extra year just killed me. It, and was, it, just, just allowed, it was just that. The Rad Godox to just get even further ahead of me. And uh, at that point, there was no looking back. That's rough. Tell, uh, tell me this, because you had mentioned it when we talked earlier. Tell me the Mythbusters uh, story where they used your, your lights. What was that about? Oh, well, that was uh, when we had inked a deal to produce the lights for uh, red light enforcement and for uh, uh, speed cameras. And in the one episode of the Mythbusters, they were driving the car faster and faster and faster to see if they can basically out speed the reaction time of the the flash and the camera system to get you <laughs> speeding. Those guys are great. So, you know, they, they started off at, you know, like 80 miles an hour, and then they started getting up to some ridiculous speeds. And uh, unfortunately for us motorists, uh, you're not going to outrun the, uh, the camera system. <laughs> but that was a, a very nice contract I had for several years where uh, uh, on a little bit of side business, I was doing a fair amount of uh, red light cameras. Now, Cena, how does that happen? Who approaches you? What municipality is like, hey, we're looking for a strobe company. <laughs> We'd like you to ha uh, have these installed in these waterproof boxes. <laughs> you know, I wish I could remember the 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 meeting of it. It was with uh, American Traffic Systems at the time. They were based in uh, Arizona, uh, Scottsdale, I believe. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how we got. Our paths crossed, but somehow our paths did cross. I, it must have been that someone introduced us to them, uh, you know, just to get, you know make the agreement uh, arrangement to meet each other. I honestly don't remember. It goes back that far. What kind of head but, and pack uh, did you have in there? Like because those those are such confined little boxes. Yeah, it was a, a monoblock design. Uh, we needed to put in high temperature, and that was actually one of the first uh, mistakes we made because they were fairly tight-lipped about how these products were being implemented. So they didn't know that most 
if not all, uh, flash equipment. The flash capacitor is only rated for 55 degrees C. <laughs> and we didn't know they were putting them in these enclosures that were going to be sitting over hot pavement in Scottsdale. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a fair amount of units that were failing because they were just not designed that way. And then after we learned that, we said, well, wait a minute, guys, you, you should have told us this. <laughs> uh, so we went back to our uh, supplier on our float photo flash capacitors and said, listen, we're going to need some 105-degree rated C caps for this. So that just made the units much larger. Um, so we had to redesign for that. But yeah, there's you know certain things you don't really think about in designing. We were, and again, I mentioned I was a tinkerer. So there was a few side projects we were on. This was one of them that wound up to be a very good contract for us for many years before uh, that faded away because there was a big scandal of photo radar. Right. And they uh, yanked out of uh, most municipalities. I haven't seen photo radar in a while, so I'm not even sure what happened to that. I think there but, was, uh, I yeah. know. It was a big lawsuit. Yeah. yeah. So that, that kind of just faded away anyway. But we were working with this other gentleman uh, that was doing some fiber optic stuff for photographing bugs. He had this where he could focus down to like one millimeter on these fiber optic ends that he was doing. Wow. And uh, we had designed it, so, or he had designed it, uh, to put all these fibers to collect the light from the flash tube in this machine block of Teflon. And unbeknownst to us, because we think Teflon's inert to everything. Well, if you hit Teflon with high doses of infrared energy, it outgasses freon gas, which is highly combustible. So when we were testing these units, you'd hear like a normal pop, and then the next one would be a little louder, the third one. By the time you got around to the tenth flash, you were afraid to hit the button because the explosion was so loud. Oh, Jesus. And literally what was happening was there was an explosion. We opened up the unit and there everything was covered in soot because of this outgassing and nobody had thought of the, the high doses of infrared energy that the flash tube was producing that would outgas this from the block of uh, Teflon. So sometimes you, you, you experiment and, and you learn things. Jesus. How many hours a week or how many hours in a day do you think you worked at Dynalite during those days? Oh. Because you're wearing a lot of hats. Yeah, no, I, w I was probably doing a, a, a solid 10-hour a day. And then even when I was home, I would, you know, I was always computer savvy. So I was on the Internet when the Internet just started. Uh, so I was doing a lot of research. Uh, but, yeah, if you're a, a small business owner, uh, yeah, there's no such thing as a 40-hour work week. I must say, now that I am duly employed by someone else now, I quite enjoy clocking out and not thinking about it anymore. <laughs> yeah, that is. Although, that's got to be nice. You know, honestly, I, I still have the work ethic and, uh, you know, you, uh, particularly for who I'm working for now, you're not allowed to work at, on the side. So yeah. I, I have to curtail and even lie that I say, you know, I, I don't do anything at home. <laughs> yeah, nothing. I do nothing. If, yeah. if if you had to Monday morning quarterback Dynalite, you know what would what would you have said? Okay, 
by 99 or 2005 or 2011, we should have done? Well, without a doubt, the last I should have done, uh, I was approached by uh, a company to to purchase Dynalite or to sell Dynalite. I should have been more aggressive on that. That was total, I, I didn't do it. And I should have. Uh, that was the one. Why didn't you Earlier do it? Earlier on, uh, you know, the last time it was just because of personal issues. I was just really dealing with the down, downward spiral of Dynalite and not really thinking that was the life jacket that I should have grabbed uh, personally. Uh, Did you I have... I was so caught up in other things. Plus, my wife had surgery, so... You know, a little bit of personal issues, a little bit of just dynamite consuming me a little too much. I couldn't see the forest for the trees. Right. Did, would, it, would it have helped if you had some kind of like advisor or another, like a, a chairman or a CFO that could have said, hey, Peter, if we look at these numbers, this is our forecast for the next 24 months, 48 months, and it's not looking great. Could that have helped? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I had mentioned that uh, my part of my charm, if you want to call it that, was my lack of education because I didn't know things that I didn't know I shouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but at the very end, when it got a little more technical on the ins and outs of running the business, uh, particularly the finances, that's when the additional education would have been fantastic to have or the person that could have advised me as much uh you know part of the issues with being a uh, a small business is it, it is too personal it right. becomes you right it is you. it became uh, your baby hard to separate it yeah absolutely and it's hard to separate that from something else so you I think this is a attribute that too many small business owners do. They hold it too long. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just think if I can just you know go one more month, things are going to get better. Right. Unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't get better. I, I know how and, I felt. I can. I can't imagine how it was for you. Like when I saw that statement, I was like, oh, I felt like I lost you know something. So. In those upcoming months, it just must have been torturous for you. Oh, it, it, it was. You know, I. Uh, you know, in the last year, for sure, I I knew the writing was on the wall. That's why I actually moved and actually stopped paying myself uh, a year before. Right. I was trying to remote run Dynalite remotely. Uh, thankfully, because the. Uh, the state of the art that the internet is, in all honesty, I had no clue. I wasn't in my office. My remote computing was that good. Okay. Uh, so all that aspect, being able to answer phone calls, answer emails, make phone calls, uh, do things on the computer uh, was seamless. Right. That part worked out great. You were Zooming before it was a, a known word? You were, <laughs> <laughs> you were on top of it. But... Uh, you know, but when you have employees, you have to have more hands on. I mean, I was I was going up once a month. 
spending a, a, a couple days there to get hands-on, to do the things that needed to be done, primarily the end-of-month closing stuff that requires a little more hands-on. But I didn't have the direct oversight of some key people that were making mistakes and I wasn't seeing it. Uh, so that, that hurt. Would it have changed the sales aspect? No. Would it have changed the, the bottom line numbers a little bit? Yes, because some money was being wasted that didn't need to be wasted. Right. Uh, but really, my, my most recent huge mistake was not uh, acknowledging a, a, an interest in the company when I, I could have probably sold it and actually made some money before the, it was worthless. Right, right. So those last, that last week or that last couple of days, that's the, the thing I find interesting. How does that go for you for a small business owner to say, okay, I got to have this conversation with my employees, my bank. I'm sure you have this conversation with your wife. I mean, what is that like? What is that last week? Well, it's definitely something you definitely do not want to do. And, and again, you, you push it off probably too far. Uh, but at some point, it just, it actually, after the fact, there was a little bit of a release. Because, you, you know, you in your heart know it's coming up. Mm-hmm. And you just don't want to talk about it. And then at some point you have to open up to your employees, whatever employees I had left and say, listen, guys, we, we tried our damn best. It's just, that, that's it. We're done. You know, if, if you go anymore, I, I just can't pay you. Right. And, uh, it is definitely gut wrenching, but also it was a little bit of freeing up because, you know, you're acknowledging what you knew was coming and it was there. Yeah. I, I asked the question cause there's a lot of people now with small businesses and I, and, and I work with them either, you know, doing photography and stuff and, and I see what they're doing and I, I, hopefully they hear this and they get an understanding of like, you need to understand how to run a business. You gotta know, you know, th- you will make right decisions and wrong decisions. That's like we said, that's business, but, yeah. um, just understanding, surrounding yourself with good people and watching the competition, try to react to the market as fast as you can. This last you know year has been crazy, but I think, uh, hopefully you know, people can hear this and be like, okay, I see, I, I can learn from this because you were making great stuff, but it was just, uh, the world was evolving so quickly. It was trying to play keep up with a Paul Buff or a, a Godex or whatever. It's a challenge. Oh, uh, absolutely. And, you know, part of it is a little soothing in that when I look at the numbers that the camera manufacturers are having to deal with. Oh, God, Peter, yes. I, I can't imagine what Nikon is doing or, or Sony, when you're looking at these numbers just continuing to drop, continuing to drop, you know, below 8 million units last year when you peaked at 121 million, how do you, how do you forecast a 97% drop? You'd be fired if you went into your boss and said, you know what, in 10 years, we're going to be, no, nobody accepts that. And... You know, that's part of the problem. That's just, you know, kind of human nature. We're not going to accept that. You, you think that if you, you work harder, you, you try harder, 
uh, like I said, I think in hindsight, the the fact that I didn't have a, uh, a more proper financial education on the ins and outs of running a business, uh, and in general, just uh, I, I made some what I thought were good moves at the time that just backfired on me. Now, particularly, I tried to get a couple of uh, very good uh, potential guys to to push the product, and it just totally wrong time. I mean, one of them was, I inked this guy uh, who was fantastic in the industry. He was a legend in the industry. But boy, I talk about bad timing. It was right after the 2008, or right just before the 2008 collapse. It was like, I don't care how good you are. You're not going to succeed. Right, right. But you know, unfortunately, crystal balls aren't that uh, clear to, to be able to see that. Sometimes you plan, and other times you react. Right. Well, we we talked about this before I hit the record button and, and schooling, and I want to talk to you about that. How, I mean, I, I kind of take you from the, the Mike Rowe kind of, uh, education of like, yeah, you don't have to be going to work at JPL and take, you know, Stanford and all that debt. You know, you can be an electrician or, or work with your hands and, and you can make things happen. What, what are your thoughts about education? Well, without a doubt, especially now that my daughter is uh, in college, the University of Tennessee, uh, it is amazing some of the things that she knows that just blows me away. And other things that she doesn't know that blows me away. It's like, <laughs> how did you get this far and not know this? Uh, there definitely needs to be more emphasis on training for life. Not all of us are going to be lucky enough to go to college. And you know, even less of us will be lucky enough to know what they want to do in college. Uh, so in my particular case, you know, as I mentioned, I was the only one in my family to actually get a high school diploma. So the fact that I had the opportunity to be in a vocational class was fantastic for me. Uh, and last time I checked, plumbers make good money. <laughs> Electricians yeah. make good money. Uh, auto body guys make good money. Mechanics, maybe not so much anymore because it's become uh, too much plug and play. But uh, there are a lot of vocational stuff out there that you can make a wonderful career. Uh, but the main thing is to never stop learning. Uh, and I think that's some, for some folks, they, you, know, you think, oh, I'm done with college. No, you're never done learning. Uh, my wife always asks me, well, what are you on the computer for now? What are you watching? Oh, I'm watching this guy do this. Or <laughs> yeah. I'm watching the, the, the SpaceX launch on, on what uh, is happening. Uh, I, I just always find it to be interesting. One of my <laughs> funniest things uh, in high school, I actually failed a class on marketing. Really? And I remember... I remember stories in that book. It was uh, based on the book, The Hidden Persuaders, and you know, why people buy things. And I failed the class. And when I had to go to night school to make up that class, I got into trouble because I didn't really belong there, not to toot my own horn, but right. I, I really 
I knew everything that he was teaching. I was, I got in trouble because I stopped listening to the teacher and I was just reading the encyclopedia because it was right next to my desk. I would just pick up and read things that intrigued me. And uh, so that's the thing. You never stop learning. And you really, even me, for as much as I like it, I should have did more structured learning rather than just you know, jack of all trades and master of none. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should have specialized a little bit more in one or two areas. And uh, that would definitely be a regret uh, that in, in my life I didn't take the time. I mean, I still got time. I'm not, I'm not dead yet. Sure. But uh, definitely always look at learning. And the other thing I probably wasn't the best at was in selecting people, you know, being able to read people, almost like how, uh, I remember this one workshop I was at, the person was a, a therapist and she could look at you and know what your ailment just by looking at you. And from that, she would know how to pose you. Because let's say posing is an important part of photography. Oh yeah. When you're doing and, and that's why I suck as a, a, a portrait photographer because I, <laughs> in testing, used mannequins. Well, you don't get to work on your interpersonal skills with a mannequin. No, no. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, posing is so important in drawing out the person and making them feel comfortable or lighting their correct side. You guys see that where I don't. I mean, that's what separates me from uh, being a te- someone who I will say is technical. I always thought a great name of a book would be the technical and emotional sides of photography. Hmm. Because you get people like a Douglas Dubler who is so technical. He would measure every single flashhead for color accuracy and know everything about it. And then you go someone more like a Joyce Tennyson who just, you know, she likes it because it needs to be lit, but that's not the important part. The important part is who she's photographing. The subject, yeah. The subject. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge difference between them. You know, like I mentioned with the flash duration and the high-speed sync and some of the trickery you can do that. That's all the technical side. Right. But that has nothing to do with the emotional side of, of drawing a, a uh, an emotion from someone. Uh one of the beauties of being in the business was meeting guys like you and hanging out with guys like you. Uh, the stories, I mean, to sit there and chat with Eddie Adams. Right. To sit and chat with uh, Bill Epridge, Joe DiMaggio, the McDonough's of the world, uh, the David Meese's. Uh It's just, I, I was blessed to have the career that I had. So while I'm um, disappointed I wasn't able to run it out and and finish up, I am totally blessed to have the career that I did have. So for the most of the part of my life, I I was doing quite well. So the fact that I'm struggling a little now... That's fine by me. I mean, I, I could have struggled in the early part of my career. I was blessed and, and had opportunities and took advantage of those opportunities. And that's the other thing I would just tell people in general. Hey, seize the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people could have done what I did. 
I didn't do anything really, really special. It just required a bit of knowledge, a lot of chutzpah, uh, and you know the desire and the drive to do it. And uh, definitely, if if you have the desire, go and do it. Get your dream, grab it, go for it. Yeah, I, I will say. And I, I wrote this down because I, when I went to the garage last night and in my office. I have 10 of your packs. I have 14 of your heads. And uh, my oldest one is 95, still working. And I can't thank you enough for actually keeping that company going and making the products you did because it has allowed me to have a livelihood, put food on the table for my kids and clothes and put them through school because your products... Uh, helped me immensely. Well, that was one of the, the humbling aspects after the demise of the, of the uh, messages I got was just, you know, like you mentioned, uh, you know, people thanking me for allowing them to be who they were because of the gear that I was able to provide to them. Uh, you know, sometimes you, you forget that aspect of it, the, the human aspect of it. Uh, and that was a, uh, Fantastic to hear. It definitely did uh, lift my heart up uh, at you know seeing those responses. Uh, uh, you, you deserved it because uh, it was great product. It, uh, it always worked. You were always there if I needed something. Um, I, I think I've I've hung that those lights in probably half the states uh, from everywhere. I even got one in Alaska for doing basketball. So. I can't thank you for all the all the uh, the great the product you made over those years. Well, it was definitely a pleasure, and like I said, uh, the, the people like yourself that I was able to hang out with at times at various workshops, uh, I enjoyed every minute of it. Well, now that you're uh, where you're living, I got to make an excuse and come out to that state and, and visit you soon. Well, yeah, there are there are some sports. Uh, you know, this is the home of NASCAR here. That's uh, true. Right here in That's true. North Carolina. Yeah, <laughs> but we don't even eat sports. We just go shoot some. Uh, we'll take some tripods and that D five hundred of yours, and just go shoot some landscapes and watch the uh, the stars yeah, go by. Always, uh, a couple hours to the uh, west of me is a lovely uh, little little uh, house out in Asheville, the Biltmore. <laughs> Sounds perfect. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much for, you know, taking the time out of your day and doing this. And again, I, I, I can't thank you enough. I'm so glad you took a swing at it and you built something and made something and you made an absolute impression in this uh, in a photo industry with all the uh, craziness uh, that this industry has gone through. You will definitely uh, be remembered for what you did and what you provided this industry. Well, I definitely do thank you for that. I am humbled, uh, but like I said, it was it was a great career, and uh, I, I just, like I said, so blessed to be able to, to do what I did for as long as I did and, and the people I got to meet. I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you for listening. Please click the like button if you enjoyed the episode. 